There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that, than that of God's sovereignty. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that. God's sovereignty is a blanket of safety for all his children. Your life is a story, a story filled with both pleasure and pain. Each of our stories is different, certainly in the details, but they are similar uh, in the ups and downs. Consider, consider your life story for a moment. Consider all the things that have happened to you. Is God sovereign in and over your pleasure and pain, and is God's sovereignty comforting to you? When I was a kid, I worked really hard and uh, saved up money and earned, earned money and bought a Huffy mountain bike. Did anybody else have a Huffy mountain bike? I got a Huffy mountain bike, and uh, God was sovereign and kind in and over my pleasure. A few years later, we were camping with my mom's family at Caledonia State Park, and I headed down to the pool. I leaned my bike up against the fence. I went in, and I never saw my bike again. Somebody stole it. Was God sovereign and kind in and over my bike being stolen, or were God's hands tied at that moment? I went to Garden Spot High School. I did well. I was in the National Honor Society, regularly on the Distinguished Honor Roll, played three sports, and was even the homecoming king. And uh, God, God was sovereign and kind in and over my pleasure. My senior year, a teacher falsely accused me of something uh, which felt rotten, and it created stress for me and my dear parents. Was God sovereign and kind in and over that false accusation and stress? Or were God's hands tied at that moment? Christina married me. Can you believe that? I mean, this is good news. And we've enjoyed our marriage for almost 14 years, and uh, God has given us four beautiful children to delight in. Um, We are quite blessed, and God is sovereign and kind in and over my pleasure. Um, Before I dated Christina, I was in a relationship for over three years, and it ended, and it wrecked me, wrecked me. Was God sovereign and kind in and over that failed relationship, or were God's hands tied at that moment? Now, whatever pleasure or pain is part of your story, do you believe God is sovereign in and over it all, and is God's sovereignty a deep comfort for you? Now, of course, none of us have uh, all the details about why God ordains certain pleasure and pain in our lives, but Scripture affirms that He does for his glory, and for our good. And I hope you can say with confidence, God has ordained this for me. He's in control. He has a plan, and he is working for my good. He'll strengthen me, and he'll deepen my joy in him through this. In the sweet taste of pleasure and the bitter taste of pain, dear brothers and sisters, I hope you realize There is purpose and design in your pleasure and in your pain. A design for your greatest good. 
which should be the solace and strength of your soul, your journey. It should should comfort you along the way. Now, some of you, I know, are suffering right now. Uh, And you might be in a state that is quite fragile. You may not find a sermon on God's sovereignty to be immediately comforting or even immediately helpful. It may even unsettle you a bit. But precious child of God, your father intends his sovereignty to be a comfort and a strength to your soul. This, This sermon will not take away your suffering, but the truth of this sermon will comfort you 10,000 ways in your suffering if you believe it and if you cherish it. Now, I think we all have questions about God's sovereignty, and, and I will certainly not resolve them all, but if the Spirit so pleases, perhaps the next two sermons will hearten you in some way, embolden you, and maybe even soothe your soul in your suffering. God doesn't explain everything to us. That's uncomfortable. Uh, there are some things we just don't know, we can't know, and, and that makes it hard at times to trust God. We have what Scripture says. We have what God wants us to know in sacred scripture. And beyond that, many of those details that we wonder about, we just don't have and we're not going to get on this side. And yet scripture shows that God is sovereign and there is purpose and there is design in pleasure and in pain. And though it is uncomfortable for a time, God promises not to leave you. God promises not to forsake you in pleasure or pain, and he promises that one day his glorious presence will resolve it all. Isn't the cross evidence that even evil works according to God's sovereign plan and purpose? Isn't the cross evidence that God is sovereign and all things must work for the good of those who love God? Isn't the cross evidence Of course, God's sovereignty in and over evil and suffering does produce big questions, big questions that I may not be able to answer for you, and some I definitely will not be able to answer for you. But dear saints, the alternative is not only unbiblical, it is frightening and provides bigger questions. If God doesn't ordain evil and suffering, if he is not sovereign over it, surprised by it, wanting to stop it without the ability to stop it, then evil and suffering can thwart God's good purposes and plans, which makes evil and suffering sovereign over God, which is terrifying because it strips us of any confidence that God is actually in control and will actually make good on his promises. If God is not absolutely sovereign, we should stop praying because he can't really do anything anyway. If God is not absolutely sovereign, we should stop evangelizing or preaching because God doesn't actually save anyone. He only makes it possible for them to be saved and dead souls never choose God or save themselves. So then if God is not sovereign, all hope is lost and the means by which God has said he saves would no longer carry any power or any effect in the world. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, 
that the sovereignty of God would be a deep comfort and assurance for our souls. Oh, that God's sovereignty would be your hope and peace and strength when you are diagnosed with cancer, when your child isn't walking with the Lord, when you get a divorce, when you miscarry, when your job is so stressful you lose sleep, when you deal with chronic pain, when your loved one dies and you feel so lonely. Oh, that God's sovereignty would be the calm of your troubled soul. And and, and this is not merely academic. This is the foundation of our hope in God and His promises. Will you, and this is a test here, will you believe all that God has revealed about Himself and find joy in it all, even if you don't get all your questions answered? Since week one, I've been building a foundation upon which I hope to construct this entire series. If you think about a concrete foundation, uh, it's composed of aggregates, a sand, gravel, crushed stone, slag. Uh, You mix it together, and when it cures, solid. Solid. And that's what I'm trying to do here, except with theology. Uh, The foundation of theology includes many different truths, but I'm highlighting three theological aggregates, if you will, that help support the beautiful structure of covenant theology. And here they are again. Number one, God's sovereign plan. Number two, God's sovereign covenants. And number three, God's sovereign grace. Covenant or Reformed theology stands upon the certainties of the one triune relational God. The scriptures in which God reveals himself and his redemptive plan in Christ, the sovereignty of God and his sovereign plan, sovereign covenants, and sovereign grace. So I began with God. And then I went to God's self-revelation in Scripture, and now I'm headed into God's absolute sovereignty, and then we're going to see how God's sovereign plan, covenants, and grace work themselves out in redemptive history. So these three themes, God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign covenants, God's sovereign grace, are all essential to sound theology and deepen, or I'm sorry, depend upon Uh, God being sovereign. If we don't get the foundation right, much of what we construct upon it will be crooked at best. What does it mean to say God is sovereign? What does that mean? Sovereignty is a quality, or you could say an attribute of God. And I want to focus on two main aspects of God's sovereignty, one this week and one next week. The first is God's absolute supremacy. And the second is God's absolute efficacy. Now, don't be intimidated by big words, all right? Don't let that weird you out if you don't know what something means. Instead, just try to understand the big words. And my goal is to help you understand that. First, to say God is sovereign is to say God possesses absolute supremacy, which means God has superlative power, knowledge, wisdom, love, patience, mercy, justice, joy, goodness, and on and on. God is the highest, uppermost, and maximum being. 
He outranks everything else, and everything else which is not God exists beneath his superior authority and might and magnitude and glory. To say God is sovereign is to say God possesses absolute supremacy in and over everything. Second, and we'll get into this next week, to say God is sovereign is to, say, to also say God is absolutely efficacious. Simply put, God's efficacy means God possesses the power and the ability to do whatever he wants to do. And he actually does what he wants to do. He has a plan that he is carrying out in the world, and it is being and will be fulfilled. More on that next week. In his best-selling book, The Sovereignty of God, theologian A.W. Pink wrote this, which, you know, honestly, likely expresses this point better than I could. Uh, So perhaps this is helpful for you. Listen for God's supremacy and God's efficacy. Pink wrote this, The Sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the Godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, such is the God of the Bible, end quote. Saints, God has revealed himself to us in scripture as sovereign. And his sovereignty is foundational to sound theology. A.W. Pink said that God's sovereignty, quote, is the key to history, the interpreter of providence, the warp and wolf of Scripture, and the foundation of Christian theology, end of quote. And I might add that God's sovereignty is the prominent thread weaving through the tapestry of Scripture, giving it both strength and beauty. Sadly, As striking as God's absolute sovereignty is in Scripture, it troubles some Christians. Sadly, it unnerves them. It sets them on edge when God intends it to comfort them. To comfort them to be the bedrock of their faith and hope. So here's my one point for today. God possesses absolute supremacy in and over everything. Now, a quick word before I begin. The topic of God's sovereignty is big, okay, and it unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. Many texts contribute to a robust understanding of this doctrine. We can't handle it lightly or quickly. Uh, To handle this doctrine comprehensively, we would need to explore biblical words like 
power, might, strength, authority, rule, reign, king, kingdom, dominion, choice, choose, chosen, decree, predestined, election, purpose, counsel, plan, will, foreknowledge, fulfill, appointed, and likely more words. We'd have to consider other topics like God's eternality, omniscience, creativity, and justice and how they all relate to God's sovereignty as well as the intricate details of fulfilled prophecy. And I cannot possibly cover all of that in two sermons. Uh, but but as, as this series progresses, we'll explore some of those things in greater detail. So you've got to stay with it. And then you'll get more unraveled. Now, as, as we go along, if you're having questions to yourself and thinking, okay, but what about? All right, which I, I bet that will happen. I encourage you to talk to me and talk to the other elders as well. You can email me. You can text me. Let's explore these things together uh, in, in Scripture and let's get you the answers that you have because I can't possibly do it all in a, in a short amount of time. And so it, when you have this, jot them down, send it to me. Let's, let's keep interacting so that we can get you the biblical answers that you desire. And I encourage you also to go deeper into these things yourself and to study them yourself, study hard, and trust that God will use Bible study to increase your wonder at his absolute and amazing sovereignty. So here we go. God possesses absolute supremacy in and over everything. Turn in your Bibles, if you will. I don't often have you do this, but grab a Bible. It will not be up on here. Acts 4. If you need the Pew Bible, there's one right within your reach. Acts 4, verses 23 and 24. Here's the backstory as you turn. In Acts 3, Peter and John uh, were in Jerusalem and went to the temple and were encountered, they encountered there a lame beggar, and they ended up healing him in Jesus' name, and so that obviously created a crowd. And so Peter preached the gospel, emphasizing the power and the supremacy of Jesus Christ as God's final prophet. Peter mentioned fulfilled prophecy, and he mentioned the, the covenant of Abraham, uh, that, or that God made with Abraham. And in Acts 4, the Jewish Religious leaders were annoyed with Peter and John preaching Christ's death and resurrection. And so they arrested them. However, and this is awesome, about 5,000 people got saved. That's awesome. And a religious council was formed who wanted to know just how Peter and John had healed this, uh, this lame beggar. Peter preached again, and he, and he told them that this lame beggar was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the cornerstone. In verse 12, Peter said this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, the religious leaders didn't know what to do with them. What do we do? And uh, because so clearly this miracle had happened and the, the people were praising God and Jesus was powerful, all of that was clear. And so they didn't know what to do, so they just threatened them. They threatened Peter and John and then they let them go. And here's what happened next, Acts 4, 23 and 24. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth 
and the sea and everything in them. They praised the Lord as sovereign. The Greek word there will sound familiar to you. Despotes. Despotes. Despot. Despot, that's a big word, which refers to a powerful ruler. But here in this text, it refers to God as supreme and sovereign ruler. Despotes could simply be translated master or lord. And I'd imagine in the NIV it might just be lord. Is that right? Um, So it doesn't have the word sovereign, but the ESV and a few other translations insert the word sovereign. And I think because as Peter said, God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, making him sovereign of sovereigns. If he created everything, then sovereign is a fitting term when referring to him as the sovereign Lord, the Lord of Lords. So I think that justifies the the insert there of sovereign. So however you translate it, whether you put master or lord or sovereign lord, the concept of God's absolute supremacy is in this text. It's how the first century Christians understood God. Despotes is also used in Revelation 6.10. Jesus opened the fifth seal. Beneath the altar were martyrs who cried out together for justice with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, same thing as in Acts 4, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The martyrs cried out for justice to the Lord who is holy and true because of his absolute supremacy which entitles him to judge and avenge. He needs absolute supremacy. Supremacy in order to do what this text says. The Lord is the preeminent master who judges and avenges with complete holiness, truth, and justice. Now turn to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. Paul used two important Greek words in verse 15. Monos dunastes, or only sovereign. Monos means Only one. Only one. Dunastes refers to a potentate who has great controlling power. So now listen to verses 13 and 16 with that in mind. I charge you in the presence of God, Paul writes to Timothy, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, only potentate, only highest and supreme leader over all things, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Okay, so... God is the only potentate or sovereign. Every other power exists beneath God's supreme power. He is the king of all other kings. He is the Lord of all other lords. He alone has immortality. He alone deserves honor and eternal dominion. And eternal dominion is what? Controlling power. God possesses eternal controlling ability and power 
All of this is God's supremacy in and over everything. The Bible uses words like sovereign, master, lord, king, rule, reign, dominion, and power to describe God because God possesses absolute supremacy and sovereignty. This is why we worship Him. This is why we live for Him, trust in Him alone, pray to Him alone, serve Him alone, treasure Him alone, and why we are confident that God alone acts for our greatest good and nothing can stop Him from carrying out what will be to our greatest good. God's supremacy is the bedrock of our Christian faith. If someone or something is above God, if anything can overpower God, our faith in him would be futile. Why trust him? What's he going to do? His hands would be tied. And, And I want you, very tenderly, pastorally, consider that truth very carefully when contemplating the role of human will and evil in redemptive history. Please turn to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 29, not far from the beginning of the Bible. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. King David and many of Israel made donations of great wealth to the temple construction. Uh, It was a moment for rejoicing, and in the presence of the assembly, King David offered a blessing to the Lord, and this is what he said. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. David understood God's supremacy. And his blessing was exalting it. Verse 12, this is a little foretaste of next week, where David said, In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Do you understand that? More on that next week. You don't need to turn to these psalms, but let me read uh, to you this amalgamation of these psalms. Psalms uh, uh, 7, verse 17, uh, chapter 47, verse 2, chapter 145, verse 13. It goes like this. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And maybe you need to hear that last line, he's kind in all of his works. That works with his sovereignty, even in things that were like, man, how does that work? It doesn't seem like he's kind. He is kind. That's what he's revealing himself to you as. Is there any question when you look in sacred scripture that God possesses absolute supremacy? Turn now to Isaiah 45, which we read earlier, verses 5 through 8. 
Isaiah 45, 5 through 8, keep in mind, this is how God wants us to esteem Him. This is how God wants us to understand Him. He, he wants us to know these things about Him so that we can worship Him and trust Him as He actually is and not how we might think we want Him to be. So this is God revealing Himself to us in this way. So Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 8, God said this through the, the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. It really makes you think that God says this about himself. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Has has God left any question about his absolute supremacy in all things? Supremacy is essential to the character, nature, and being of God. If God is not supreme, if he does not possess supremacy, if he is not preeminent in and over all things, he would not be God. Matthew 19, 23 through 26, referring to salvation, Jesus looked at his disciples and he told them this, with man, this is impossible, talking about salvation. And then he added very quickly, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus could say that because God is absolutely sovereign and possesses the ability to do whatever he wants, including saving and reforming the vilest person entirely apart from any contribution of that person. Turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21. Jesus is God in human flesh, and he possesses supremacy. So let let me begin here actually with verse 19. Paul wrote, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Those are words of absolute supremacy. Paul added in verses 20 and 21 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. Oh, this is precious about Jesus. He possesses superlative rule, authority, power, and dominion. His name is everlastingly preeminent over every other name. No one compares. He is better than everything else. And then in verse 22, Paul said that God put everything beneath his feet 
It's under his feet. He is the authority, the supreme authority. So get this now. Your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, possesses total and unqualified supremacy. God made him the head of the church. And as our head, he leads us, feeds us, protects us, keeps us, preserves us, strengthens us, and saves us for the magnification of his supremacy. A risen Savior is a supreme Savior, for not even death could hold him. Oh, that's good. Two more short points, and then I'll conclude. Colossians 1, 17 and 18, Paul wrote this. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is an unequivocal statement of Christ's absolute supremacy in and over everything. This says that Jesus possesses supreme rank as the firstborn who is before all things. He's most important. He raised from the dead, brothers and sisters. In case you don't know, people don't do that. Okay? He did. He's supreme. A guy who raises from the dead, if we say, you're supreme over all things, uh, we just have to get behind that statement. Okay? He raised from the dead that he might have supremacy in everything, which now includes death, which he just kicked. He's supreme in everything. He's supreme in salvation. He's supreme over sin. He's supreme in pleasure. He's supreme in pain. He's supreme in death. He's supreme in hell. He's supreme in our lives. He is supreme in everything. The supremacy belongs to Christ. And this means, please get this, this truth means the world to God's people. It's precious because God's people long for hope and comfort and assurance and God's sovereignty is the rock upon which those things are built. You just don't have it outside of his supremacy and his sovereignty. You don't. You lose it. Bad theology takes you away from God's sovereignty. Last one. This is a good one to end with. Jude 24 and 25. And this is, this is a great concluding text because in these two verses, Jude gives a doxology, a beautiful doxology which expresses in explicit terms. He doesn't even leave the door open here. He just explicit terms to the utter supremacy and sovereignty of God. These two verses are meant to lead us to praise God. They're meant to, to lead us to worship God for all that He is, not to argue away His attributes that are central to Him being God. This is for praise. This is for worship. This is for goodness of our souls. They are meant to unite God's people. God's sovereignty often divides God's people, which is kind of confusing, but it does. And, and this is meant to unite God's people in the glory and beauty of his sovereignty. God intends for these verses to delight our hearts, to, to, to be a joy for us, and to create confidence in us, to make our faith solid. Okay? So just listen. Now to him, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless 
before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That, that is so precious to God's people. Our sovereign God is entirely capable of keeping us from stumbling and presenting us blameless before God, and He will do it. He will. And that is so hopeful, and that is so heartening to God's people, the certainty of God's sovereignty. This doxology, if you'll notice, says nothing about our will or determination but rather exalts the divine sovereignty of God, the divine ability of God, the divine capability of God. True confidence and assurance. Aren't those precious things that we want? I hope. True confidence and assurance are generated by the sovereign ability of God and come to us by faith, which God gives. Sovereignly. as a gift. I'll close with this story uh, from R.C. Sproul. You might have known him. He recently passed away. Great theologian, contender uh, for the faith and the gospel. And R.C. was close friends with an Episcopalian priest named John Guest, who you might be familiar with that name, who moved from England to the United States. And when he moved, John visited Philadelphia, an antique dealer in Philadelphia, a collector, uh, and, and saw a sign from the 18th century American Revolution that said this, we serve no sovereign here. After seeing the sign, John, the English preacher, said, how can I possibly communicate the idea of the kingdom of God in a nation that has a built-in allergy to sovereignty? That was so insightful of John Guest. Wow, that pins Americanism and American philosophy. That that has us down. Americanism has not served the church uh, in America well, and we have been indoctrinated by the core values of individualism, choice, and self-reliance, which encourages an aversion in us to the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty. That's why the American church is thoroughly anti-sovereignty in so many ways. You'll see it everywhere. There's a reason for this stuff. Sproul added some helpful commentary. It's a long quote, but it's really worth it. Okay, so R.C. is right on, and he said this. As Americans, we're used to a democratic process of rule. When you're talking about sovereignty, you're talking about government and about authority. From a biblical perspective, when the scriptures speak of God's sovereignty, they reveal God's governmental authority and power over his entire universe. In my, seminary, in my classes in seminary, I raise questions like, is God in control of every single molecule in the universe? When I raise that question, I say, the answer to that question will not determine whether you are a Christian or a Muslim a Calvinist or an Arminian, but it will determine whether you are a theist or an atheist. 
Sometimes the students can't see the connection. And I say to them, don't you realize that if there is one molecule in this universe running around loose outside the scope or the sphere of God's divine control and authority and power, then that single maverick molecule may be the grain of sand that changes the entire course of human history that blocks God from keeping the promises he has made to his people. It may be that one maverick molecule that will prevent Christ from the consummation of his kingdom. For if there is one maverick molecule, it would mean that God is not sovereign. If there is any element of the universe that is outside of his authority, then he no longer is God overall. In other words, sovereignty belongs to deity. Sovereignty is a natural attribute of the creator, God owns what he makes, and he rules what he owns. End of quote. Brothers and sisters, Sproul is spot on. Spot on. God's sovereignty is central to God, and let me take that a little step further. It's central to Reformed theology. Dear brothers and sisters, It is a temptation to see topics like God's sovereignty as academic and impractical. That's for the theologians to work out. I don't want to get involved in controversy. Let's let let the pastor think about that. But when success comes for us, God's sovereignty promotes humility and gratitude in us. And when suffering comes for us, God's sovereignty provides strength, comfort, and hope for us. When your health declines, or your investments tank, or you fail your final exam, or you lose your spouse or child, or you fear the future, or whatever, fill in the blank, God's sovereignty becomes immediately practical. And how you understand it makes a big, big difference in how you enjoy success, how you grieve in suffering, and how you fight the good fight of faith. It makes a practical difference in your life right now, how you understand the sovereignty of God, how you answer the questions of how these things fit together in Scripture. It makes a practical difference, not just to me, because I have to preach on it, to you in the pews. In your heartache, in your struggle, in your pleasure, in your pain, makes a difference. Charles Spurgeon said this, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. That's really good. God's sovereignty is the secure and comforting place you lay your head so that you will rest well in complete confidence that God has you. He has you. He's sovereign. God has you precisely because He possesses absolute and unrivaled and unquestionable supremacy in and over all things. That is the safest place to be in all of the world, right inside of God's will, with his sovereignty being that that pillow upon which you lay your head and rest. The sovereignty of God will allow you to snooze really well when you really trust it. 
And so now, I think the main application that I just want to do, and I know there's a lot here, I think my application is enjoy the comfort of this precious truth. Enjoy the comfort of it. Allow it to just minister to your soul. My God has me. My God has my salvation. He's got my life. He's got my pleasure. He's got my pain. He's got me. He's never going to let me go. He's, he's going to work all things for my good. He is sovereignly at work in my pleasure and pain. And what I feel right now so deep that I just ache every night, this has purpose. This has Meaning, this is not a mistake. This did not surprise God. He brought it to me in order to then come and minister to me through it to strengthen my faith, strengthen my joy, strengthen my comfort and assurance in Him. That's not academic. (laughs) That's central to Scripture and who God is. And I just, I want you to delight in that. And so we're going to go a lot of great and beautiful places on this journey as we go from here, but this one's critical, and next week will be critical as well. So I pray these things are a comfort to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your great sovereignty would be a comfort to your dear people here at Jerusalem Church. God, be patient with us when we question it. Help us to question it with faith. There's a way to ask questions that is showing faith. I pray that we would just want to believe what's in Scripture and how you've preciously revealed yourself to us. God, help us through this. This is big. This is really big. And and this matters to every day. And so I pray that that we, your people, will see these things clearly, be very humble because we can be misled and so uh, just help us to see these things, to test these things in Scripture and that they would comfort us, that this would not be an argument point or a debate point, but this would be practical theology that makes a difference when we wake up on Monday morning, when we struggle through pain, when we enjoy great pleasure. So God, I pray that Jerusalem Church is a church that delights in your Sovereign grace. All for your glory, we pray. Amen.